Good morning. Happy Easter. He is risen. I'm just going to get another um, stand here. Hopefully, I don't mess anyone up with their music. When you do this a couple times, you realize that you have certain needs. When you preach, and one of them is just to have lots of room. Just like when you go to work, you want to get everything. Do you guys do that in the morning? You put your computer and your phone and your notepad and your pen, and okay, now I can work. That's what I'm doing right now. Well, I'm very grateful to get to preach this morning. Um, this is, I'm imagining, Easter Sunday is the Sunday that most pastors want to preach because it's kind of the best, it's the best one, right? Um, And yet Lance and Scott and Nelson have very graciously given up the slot um, in the calendar year to to let me to preach. So very grateful. Thank you. Thank you, pastors. Thanks, guys. And um, I'm also pretty nervous as well because it's Easter. But now I said that it's over. I'm not nervous anymore, so that's good. Well, we're going to start this morning just by digging into Scripture. And um, we actually kind of already read some of it uh, from when, uh, when we read the passages earlier, so that's great. It actually filled in some of the gaps that we're not reading in the sermon part, so you can put the whole thing together. But if you have a chair Bible next to you, or um, you brought one, or you have your phone with you, uh, please turn to Luke 24, and we're going to start with reading verses 1 to 12. So that's Luke 24. 1 to 12, and you can see on the screen we're, we're going to go to 44 to 53, and then we're going to go to Acts. So if you want to get ready for that already, you can do that. All right. Luke 24, 1 to 12. It's actually the page before. Here we go. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, The women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Because it was a resurrection, not because they were women, just to be clear. (laughs) Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. And down to verse 44. So then, I should just say, Jesus appears, starts to, uh, to appear to different people. We read about that this morning. Um, he starts to reveal that he actually has been risen, raised from the dead. 
Verse 44, so he's gathered with his disciples here. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out into the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And over to Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The word of the Lord. So we're going to dive back into some of that a little bit later, um, but first... Just to say, for those of you who maybe haven't been with us uh, up to this point, we are in the middle of a series on the Apostles' Creed. Just so happens that today is the part of the creed that says, on the third day he rose again from the dead. I think it was lined up that way, but I'm not totally sure. Um, and as we've done every week, let's, why don't we stand and read the creed, if you're able and willing. Um, let's read it together. It's on the, on the screen here. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated if you want. But it is Easter, so if you just want to stand, you can do that too. It's a celebration, right? All right. So we've been, we've been talking, um, obviously, a lot about the creed in the last few weeks. Um, the creed is a, a summary of Christian teachings. It's a type of a pledge of allegiance, in a sense. 
Um, but it's a framework. It's not the fullness of all that Christians believe, all that we believe. It's a kind of skeletal structure where we fill in um, the meat and the muscle with, uh, with the stories of the past and with our own stories. And as we've been reminded, when we say, I believe, we are not just saying something that we believe in our, our heads, but is a, it is a way of believing into. It is a way of actually being disciples as we walk with Jesus. We are believing into um, these things that we're saying and, and more. One of the fascinating things about the Apostles' Creed, and I think actually Lance covered this way at the beginning when we talked about the intro to the Creed and why we were doing it. So probably most of us don't remember. Um, it was an excellent sermon to Lance, but just saying it was a long time ago. We've been in this series for a while now. Um, and one of the things that, that he reminded us is that this is actually a creed that was used by the early church often at the time of Easter. And so this creed was used at Easter because it was used for baptism. Um, and so I don't know if anyone wants to get baptized this morning, but if you do, I'm sure you're open to that. We're open to that, right, Lance? Nelson? Go down to the ocean after? Um, I'm not joking, actually. If you want to get baptized, it's Easter morning. He has risen. Just, just say the word. Yeah, he's risen indeed. Uh, that's good. Um, so for the, for the early church, um, they, would, they would use this creed in baptism. And so often for the early church, these were people, these were Gentiles, so they were not Jewish people um, most of the time as the, as the church was growing and expanding. And so they would have no background um, whatsoever to who this Messiah was um, and to the stories of, of the Israelites. And so they would sometimes spend two to three years in what they would call catechism class. So the Catholic Church still does these. Um, but they would learn the stories of the faith. And then after two years or so, um, they would come to Easter Sunday morning. Actually, the night before, they would often spend in prayer and in worship, reading scripture. And then Sunday morning would come, and they would go down to the water, and they would actually strip off their clothes and their accessories, and they would get baptized. And this is a little bit how it would go. So they would read this, this creed or um, an, an earlier version of this creed. As they were in the water, do you believe... And God, the Father Almighty, I believe, and they would be plunged down into the water the first time. Do you believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Spirit, and Mary the Virgin, and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and was dead and buried, and rose on the third day alive from the dead, and ascended into the heavens, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and will come to judge the living and the dead? I believe and they would be plunged down into the water again and brought back up. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? I believe. And they would be plunged again, and then they would be sent out into the world to do good works and to grow in faith. And often, I might add, um, for these early Christians, once they made this um, public profession of their faith, they would often be killed, uh, martyred. They would be considered criminals against Rome. So the first Christians, whether we're, um, when we're looking at this group of second, third, fourth century Christians, they drew a connect uh, direct connection between the death and resurrection of Christ, their own conversion experience and baptism as a symbol of that, and their mission 
in the world. And Luke actually does the same thing. That's why we read the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, because Luke actually wrote uh, both of these books. And it's kind of a little bit like season one and season two. Um, Luke is very much about the life of Jesus, um, his life, his suffering, his death and resurrection. And then it's season two, which is the acts of the apostles or the acts of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is sent at the beginning of Acts. And so it's not just, I think often when we think about Easter, um, we think about maybe this isn't a diss against Mel Gibson, but his version of the Passion, which, to be fair, he was probably just wanting to show that part of the story. But it's not just that Christ is risen and then it's over. It is actually just the beginning of the story. It's the beginning of a new creation. So Luke and the other authors of the New Testament and the early church seem to apply the death and resurrection of Christ in a very deep and personal way. I think often when we think about it, it can be very distant. It can be, yeah, that happened, it's over there. Um, but they, over and over again, they would apply this in a way that it, it's, it's about me, it happened to me, it happened to us. And then they would connect that with mission immediately. We're talking here about discipleship, about apprenticeship to Jesus. And if you actually, um, because I've been prepping for this sermon the last couple of weeks, I've been reading the New Testament through the lens of, of resurrection. And it's fascinating to see how much of scripture of the New Testament um, is about the resurrection of Christ and mission. And if you actually take that out, you have, other than parts of the Gospels, you actually have no New Testament left. It's all about resurrection and mission, how we live in this world as followers of Jesus. That's astonishing. That was to me anyway. Maybe you guys already knew that. Um, so we're going to start, we're going to dig into this a little bit this morning um, in the time that we have together. We're going to start looking at sin and death. So yeah, thank you for whistling. Um, <laughs> We've already done some work on this in the past few weeks in, in our previous sermons, but today we want to connect sin and death directly with resurrection because we can't understand resurrection and mission without understanding what we're saved from and what we're raised to. So from the beginning, according to the scriptures, sin and death go hand in hand. You don't have one without the other. Sin and death from Genesis 3 onward, when the curse um, came, makes their way through the stories in Scripture, particularly the people of God, the Israelites. And we see it everywhere. We follow their story through the rescue uh, from Egypt, uh, through covenant after covenant that people just can't seem to keep, through the prophets declaring, turn from your sin and live, and the prophets being killed, through attempts to return to the Lord and then fall back again through exile, through war and violence. We follow these people of God and their story, and we wonder, what is happening? How is this a people of God? What is God up to? This is actually a big mess. Isaiah 25, Isaiah was a prophet of the Old, the Old Testament to the people of God. Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. 
On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So God is up to something. God knows something that the people don't yet know. And what does he mean that he will swallow up death forever? If the curse is going to be removed, then sin and death have to be dealt with. How is God going to rescue all of creation? And so we follow the Old Testament stories right into the New Testament, to the life of Jesus. So one of the many things that Jesus did in all the ways, of all the ways that he brought the kingdom, he ushered in the kingdom of God, one of the most disruptive and unsettling things that he did was he went around forgiving people of their sins. And this was just unheard of. How dare he? He didn't just heal the lepers, the lepers or uh, people who were blind, but his ministry also involved addressing the curse dead on. Pun intended. Over and over again, we see it in action, and I wanted to just show one, one story of all the stories in the New Testament from Luke 5, Luke 5, 20 to 21. So here's a situation where, where um, Jesus is preaching in a house, and the crowds are gathering, and some friends have a, have a friend who is a paralytic, and so they think, let's go to Jesus and see if he can heal him. And they bring him to the house, but the crowds are just so massive that they just can't get through. They can't get their friend to Jesus. And so they have the brilliant idea of going up on the roof, cutting, a, cutting or sawing a hole in the roof, and lowering him down to Jesus. I spent some time trying to imagine this story yesterday, and I don't get it. Like all the construction issues and um, all the things falling down, but this is what happened. Um, and they lowered their friend to Jesus for healing. And so we pick up it up in the scripture here. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And of course, Jesus does heal the man um, his physically. But he tells them that he did it so that they would know that he can also do that, so that he can also forgive sins. But that's not all that needs to happen. Forgiveness of sins is one thing, but what about death? The ultimate result of sin. No one can escape it. Great, Jesus, you can forgive sins, that's great. But at the end of the day, death still holds the trump card. Death still has the power. And so Jesus takes on death itself. And he defeats death through his resurrection. He takes the whole package, the whole curse from beginning to end, and he conquers it. Christ is the victor. And this is the story of the New Testament. At the end, John's revelation, Revelation 118, I, Jesus says, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive and forever. I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades, death and hell. Amen? It's good news. Okay, so how does Jesus overcome death? 
How was death swallowed up in victory? I, I grew up in the church, so I've heard this story most of my life. And as I had to prepare a sermon on it, I realized that there's just parts of this I don't get. Like, we just, we, we believe it. Uh, but I was really wrestling with it this week. I'm like, I, I just don't get how, how it happened. And obviously, there's mystery to it. Um, but in that, I read this, I was reading this really, really good book. Um, and this quote came up, and it's a bit long, but it really helped bring things together for me a little bit more. And so I thought I would share it with you this morning. It's long, it's rich, and hopefully it just opens up our eyes a little bit more to um, how Jesus, what, what's happening when Jesus ri- raises, rises from the dead. On a theological level, salvation is not whatever you want to call it the fulfillment of every need or the compensation for every lack. Salvation in the Bible is a promise that God offers the world on the horizon of our expectation of personal and universal death. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation because it promises to break open the vicious cycle of death. Death is the power that draws every living thing into its circle. We can gain the partial salvation we are willing to pay for, but none of these techniques of salvation can succeed in buying off death. Salvation in the New Testament is what God has done to death in the resurrection of Jesus. Salvation is what happens to you and me and the whole world in spite of death. The gospel is the announcement that in one person's history, death is no longer the eschaton, which is the final thing, but, but was only the second to last thing, and has now become past history. Death lies behind Jesus, qualifying him to lead the procession from death unto new life. Since death is what separates persons from God in the end, only the, that power which transcends death, can liberate humans for eternal life with God. This is the meaning of salvation in the biblical Christian sense. I, I tear up because I'm thinking about the, our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka this morning. And despite my tears, we have a hope they have a hope that this is not the last thing. That they are with Christ right now. Death is no longer the final thing. It is the second to last thing. Death is no longer even an enemy. It has been redescribed. It is now a doorway to the final thing which is life with Jesus, eternal life with Jesus. Yes, we all die, and we all will die, unless the Lord returns in our lifetime, but it is not the end. Eternal life, resurrection life, has already begun. So 
So let's go back. Good, okay, wait. Good news? <laughs> Good news, because we're all going to die. And it's not the end. It's not the end. Okay, let's go back to the time of Jesus before his death and resurrection. So the concept of resurrection was not what rocked the Jews. They believed in resurrection. The Jews believed and believe that at the end of history, all who are God's people will be raised from dead, from death to life. So resurrection is not, was not a difficult concept for them unless you were a Sadducee. Um, but otherwise, this was very much a belief that everyone would be raised from death to life at the, at the end times, the final days. But what was a big deal is when Jesus would say things like this. Jesus is speaking to Martha before he raises Lazarus from the dead. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who is to come into the world. Basically, Martha is saying, I have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus, but I love you. Um, of course she didn't. How, how would she know what he's talking about? Jesus is saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And when Jesus died, the Jews didn't think, well, don't worry, he'll be back in a few days, or um, at least he's in heaven now. They thought that Jesus was like everyone else, that he would remain dead um, until the end of history, when he would be raised with everyone else. No one expected Jesus to be raised in the middle of history. No one expected him to start a new creation and bring a new kingdom in the middle of history. It had never been done before or since. And it changed everything. So all this talk about death and sin and resurrection, but so what, right? That's the question we ask um, and when we read scripture. Okay, it's a good story, but so what? 2019. Is this some kind of generic, Jesus died for our sins and rose again, and um, that's nice, it's just, it's over there. Um, is this some kind of, just that happened and it's good and, and, it, and it covers me and I'll just go on living? But if you recall reading uh, Luke and Acts, reading about the baptism of the early church, we see that there's a direct connection between who Jesus was, what he did, um, in mission. Let's read part of that again. Luke 24, and then going into Acts. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. These are Jesus' words. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. And it came to Canada 
even. Something deeply personal is happening here. This is not generic salvation applied to the world and then we all move on. This is not just Jesus trying to make a point so he heals the man and forgives his sins to show that he can do stuff. This is deeply, deeply personal. Now they are witnesses to what God has done and wants to keep doing to the ends of the earth. And this is for us. This kind of resurrection life is for us, also in the middle of history. This isn't just become a Christian and when you die someday, you'll be with Jesus kind of theology. This is for us today in the middle of history, resurrection life. So before we move on to mission, a quick summary. Through his resurrection, Jesus overcomes sin, death. Through his resurrection, Jesus gets very, very personal offers forgiveness of sins. And through his resurrection, Jesus sends us on a mission. So how does it make you feel when you hear something like, all Christians are missionaries? It's a little, I don't know. How do you feel? Uh, That I should be on a plane. That you should be on a plane. Thank you. That's actually my next point. So, Chelsea. Um, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable, right? But, but actually, when, when we have experienced the forgiveness of our sins, how can it not be that the logical, the, the impulse, the next step is that we want to be witnesses of it because we've been changed, because we've been changed. When you have this kind of freedom, when you know this kind of resurrection life, you can't help but declare it in all different kinds of ways. It doesn't mean that you're going to join a mission agency um, or go on a plane. It doesn't mean that you're going to buy horrible second-hand clothes um, and start using used tea bags for your tea. It's like the old uh, missionary ideas. Probably not so much anymore. It doesn't mean that you'll go overseas. But what it does mean is simply that wherever Christians are in the world and wherever God sends them, they are his witnesses to what he has done, what he is doing, and what he is going to do. We are witnesses. So what does this look like? Well, we don't have a lot of time to talk about mission this morning. I hope maybe someday we'll do a little mini sermon series on it or something. Um, if you want a really good book, if you're interested more in, in what God's mission is, I recommend a book by Christopher Wright called The Mission of God. It's very thick, but it's so good. And you're welcome to borrow it from me. I have it. Um, and it's really transformed my, my understanding of, um, of mission and God's mission. It also doesn't have any dust on it, so Lance, if you want to borrow it, uh, you're more than welcome to. <laughs> Um, if you were here last week, you would get that joke, but I apologize, otherwise it's not funny. Um, so, mission. Well, we, sometimes we see the Old Testament and the New Testament as kind of two different missions. The Old Testament is about social justice. It's about actual um, freedom from oppression. We look at the story of Israel, um, their, their escape from, from Egypt. 
We see the Old Testament as, as, yeah, very much about mercy and justice. And it is. And then we look at the New Testament, and it seems like it's a little bit more about, about sin and our spiritual condition. And so our history as, a, as Christian, a Christian church worldwide is that we've kind of polarized these two things, and we've said either God's mission is about this, social justice, or God's mission is about this, evangelism and, and saving your soul from hell kind of thing. Um, and so it's both. We'll just summarize that and say it's both. It doesn't need to be one or the other. It is both God cares for the whole person, for every unjust political, social, and religious structure and, and the effects of those structures on people to the very core of the sin in our hearts and setting us free. And so the mission of God can and will be fulfilled because of and through the resurrection of Christ, and we get to participate in it. We have a small part to, pr- to play in God's new creation as the kingdom comes to the whole person. And so because of the resurrection, Jesus sends his followers out on mission. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. So as we close today, my friends, my artisan friends, who I eat dinner with sometimes, cry with and laugh with, um, this is the question that I want to pose to us. It's not my own question. I read it in a book, and I thought, oh, that's, that's our question for today. If the gospel isn't transforming you, how do you know it will transform anything else? If the gospel isn't transforming you, how do you know it will transform anything else? And we don't. We don't know. We can hear the stories every Sunday. We can read them in the Bible. We can talk about them. We can come to Easter service and we can worship and pray, which I forgot to do earlier. I apologize, but God's with us. It is in vain if it is not transforming you. All of it. I mean, maybe, you know, your your salvation, you're, you're saved. But in this life, it is in vain if it is not transforming you. And if the gospel isn't transforming you and me, then how do we know it will transform anything else? What good is it? What good is the resurrection of Christ in the cycle of violence in Northern Ireland again this week? In the famine in Yemen? And the other 200 million people starving to death right now? What good is it with terrorism in places like Sri Lanka, in civil wars in Afghanistan, in Syria, in Somalia, and Mali, in Israel, and Palestine. And the list goes on. In human and sex trafficking taking place all over the planet and on this street. What good is it to address things like poverty and homelessness and disease and sickness and violence, addiction, 
idolatry, apathy, selfishness, anger, lust, unfaithfulness, depression, and despair. Death and the power of death, sin and the power of sin, whether it's done against or done to, it's everywhere. And we were reminded again this morning that it is wreaking havoc still. And yet, we believe that in the middle of the darkest night, a light shines. And we are reminded at Easter today, once again, that there is hope, that there is surprise, that there is still resurrection life for us, and healing and flourishing and freedom for us and for our world. And my friends, we are called to embody the new creation through how we live. That is our call as the church, to embody the new creation. If you are a Christian this morning, we embody it. We live it out. How we love through holiness, through our ethics, through forgiveness, and not just for ourselves or the sake of ourselves and our, our community, but we are a city on a hill so that others too would come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is the mission of God, and God's mission is our mission. So does the resurrection hope of Jesus still transform lives and communities here? We all know, or maybe you don't know, but the church is dying in the West. The church is dying in the West. We are in the West. And yet it is thriving, thriving in places like Africa and Asia. But not the West. It's, it's, it's dying. You read articles about it, people saying it's, it's on its way out. Does the resurrection hope of Jesus still transform lives and communities here? There's lots of reasons why the church is dying in the West. We don't have time to get into them. But I suspect that one of the reasons, one of the big reasons, is the question I'm asking us this morning. Is the gospel transforming you? Like actually transforming you and me? And how can I know that it will transform anything or anyone else if I don't experience it for myself? So we look around our world, but we do not despair. Do not despair for um, our brothers and sisters because we have hope, because we believe that those who are being persecuted on this day and possibly killed, that there is hope for them. There is hope for them. We also do not despair because, because Jesus brought resurrection life in the middle of history, and it's for this day, and we have freedom from sin offered to us for this day. And God wants to do something new in our midst. Is the gospel transforming you? Or maybe a better way to ask is, how do you want the gospel to transform you, if you do? 
It starts very, very personal. And it goes to the ends of the earth. So today we celebrate Easter and we celebrate resurrection. And I just, I'm up here to simply remind you that this life that we celebrate, the resurrection of Jesus, is also for us. It's applied then to us that we are baptized into his death and resurrection. And we are risen again also in this life and the life to come. The believers in the early church had a little bit of a, a bad reputation or they were just kind of strange, kind of weird. Um, the Romans called them offensive and disgusting because they would make a habit of holding prayer meetings in the catacombs among the bones of the dead. The Romans would say that they almost had an affection for the dead, just weird, like keep the dead over there, but they would come close to the dead. What should be held far away was held near. And it has been thought that this was done because of persecution. They were hiding. Uh, They didn't want people to um, see them gathering, and probably this is partially true. Um, They did have to hide to worship. But also, they met together in the catacombs among the dead because the place of the dead had become a place of Christ's presence. It is a place where Christ made contact and changed everything. Where everyone else would see horror and darkness and despair, these Christians saw broken gates, smashed locks, and a place where Christ had gone and set the captives free. Even death itself was now different because of Christ. And so they would go there to pray, to remind themselves that this was, this was reality. This is reality now. So what am I saying? Should we pray among the dead? No, I'm not saying that. Um, But I think these early Christians were onto something. Even the dead is not dead. And if we want the the resurrection life of the gospel to continue to transform us, if we want to continue to embrace the mission of God, then maybe we need to go down to the dead things in us, in our community, among us here, Artisan, as a church, and invite the resurrection life of Jesus in. This means letting go. This means dying to something, as we learned last week as well. This means taking up a cross. This means suffering. But if we want the kingdom to come, we have to acknowledge and face the dead and allow Christ to make contact with everything. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is um, the only gospel that actually ends, the original version of it, ends with the women leaving the tomb, and the, the verse is something like, and they were afraid. And then there's a section after that, but that was actually added um, later. And so if you notice at the end of Mark, there's a little asterisk that says these are the different manuscripts. But the original version of Mark is that they left the tomb and they were afraid, and the story ends And that, maybe that's where we want to end this morning, as we consider if the gospel is transforming us and if we believe that it can actually transform um, our world, the people around us and the communities around us. 
it just, it, it's left hanging. What are we going to do? What are we going to do, artisan? What are we going to do with this resurrection? Will we go with Jesus to the dead on behalf of others? Not just for ourselves, but others. Will we go with Jesus where the dead are and proclaim resurrection life to those places and to those powers and then live it out and embody it? That's the work. That's the work. Jesus has already won and we, his church, are his hands and his feet and his voice. We pray, we intercede, and we go. We'll end this morning with reading from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's beautiful chapter on death and victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Come, Lord Jesus.